this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thank you for joining me today. We are continuing our study in Romans, the book of Romans. Today we're in chapter 2. I'm looking forward to studying God's Word with you as we continue this series of moving from change, chains of sin to chains of righteousness. That's our theme for the book of Romans. And today we're going to be thinking about an obedient heart. Romans chapter 2, of course, comes after the discussion uh, last week that we had where Paul is exposing the whole world as being under sin. And we, in particular, talked about self-worship and the things that people, according to Romans chapter 1, will use to uh, replace God, That uh, the, the things that people hold up and elevate to places in their lives and in their hearts that they have no business being and end up treating those things as idols and, and worshiping them. And now Paul is, is going to continue that discussion and really show how even if we are not in that state right now, we have at one time or another uh, ultimately sinned. And he's continuing to prove really that everybody, everybody has, has ultimately separated themselves from God. And he wants to tackle in the, in the top half of this chapter the hypocrisy of Gentiles who would basically be the pot calling the kettle black. That's like the opening salvo in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 when Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And so Paul is essentially saying, you get through the end of Romans chapter 1 and you think, yeah, that is that is all terrible. All the things that he's naming there, the idolatry and the sexual immorality and the deceitfulness and, you know, on and on and on. As Paul is naming all these sins and, and you know, we affirm along with him, yes, that's terrible. And then right after that, he says, well, you've you've done the same thing and I've done the same thing. You know, maybe not every single one of those things on that list, but at one point or another, we've uh, lied or we've lusted or we've been greedy or we've been covetous or we've been whatever the case may be, whatever is identified as sin in Scripture. And so Paul is saying we are we are condemned also. And then in the top half of this chapter, he's addressing Gentiles. And then in the bottom half, he's going to address Jews specifically. Verse 17, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will, and he says, you there, who therefore teach another, 21, verse 21, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? And you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? So he's indicting all people. He's saying that the scripture, that the law of God is ultimately indicting all of us and exposing all of us for being sinners. And we may, along with Paul, say amen to what is sin, but his point is in that and saying amen to that and acknowledging that, yeah, that all those things are sin and there's so much corruption in the world. He's saying that we condemn ourselves. We, we, are, we are affirming what the law of God says about us because we've done those same things. And so he's exposed the foolishness of atheistic Gentiles in, in chapter one and, and the many sins 
that they relish. And so we might say in chapter two, he's drawing his attention now to, to moralistic Gentiles. So maybe people who aren't in uh, atheists in, in total depravity and living uh, their lives in this way and, and the number of things that Paul talks about in chapter one, but the, they are moral nevertheless. They're, they are striving to be good fathers or good mothers or good employers and employees and good um, good husbands and wives, etc., and they acknowledge that there is moral law and that man has a conscience and man has an obligation to do good to others. But at the same time, he says, we, we are still in sin. Even if, even if we are trying to be good moral people, <clears throat> I might even say godly people, like the Jews whom he addresses in the second half of this chapter, we, we still are guilty we still are guilty because, as we'll notice later when we get to chapter five and verse sixteen, that it's only it's just it only takes one sin, one sin, one transgression, to bring about condemnation, eternal eternal death. Romans five again in, in verse sixteen, as Paul is making some contrast there between Adam and and Christ, and the abundance of God and and showing the abundance of God's grace and just how amazing it is that it, it covers many sins. Even though one sin leads to eternal death, God's grace is powerful enough and great enough to cover many, many sins and remove them com- completely. But getting back to uh, the, the text here, um, you know, Paul says we condemn ourselves because at some point, again, we, we gave hearty approval even if we didn't engage in the same things, maybe we thought, yeah, I sure would like to take vengeance or give that person a taste of their own medicine or something like something like this, where they're driving down the highway uh, or, you know, in, in relationships or whatever the case may be at work. Uh, we've we've stumbled. We've we've sinned. And so Paul says, you you and I have no excuse and we may pass judgment on other people and legitimately do so. But in, in doing that and condemning sin and other people, we acknowledge we we show and expose ourselves for having done done the same thing, right? Or, or judge ourselves rather because we we've done the same thing. You know, Tweety Bird famously said, "What a hypocrite!" And there's a lot of religious people, moral people, who live under the same illusion that Paul is describing. You know, they they as you know, I read just a moment ago, preach don't steal, and yet and somehow they they steal from others, whether it's, you know, cheating on your taxes or, you know, taking cash out of the drawer, whatever the case may be. But they, they talk out of both sides of their mouths, depending on who's in the room at the time. And Paul is telling us we can't be, we can't allow ourselves to have that, that kind of illusion. We can't suppose that we're going to escape condemnation just because we are feigning piety and saying, yes, that's, you know, looking at sin and saying, yes, that's terrible. And then we we go and do the same thing. God is not mocked or deceived. And we may deceive ourselves, but we're not going to deceive him. Duplicitous people can imagine that somehow they'll escape his judgment. But it's that's just it. It's just from their imagination. God is long-suffering and kind but not because he thinks nothing of our sin or is fooled by performances or is fooled when we say, well, yeah, those people are so terrible. At least I'm, I'm not like them. Well, we've still sinned at some point. His, in God's kindness, his patience is meant to lead us to repent of, of our sins. 
as Paul says in, in verse 4 of this text. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So God doesn't wink at sin. It's not that he's diminishing sin or he doesn't think anything about sin or that it's not a big deal uh, or that somehow our performance uh, will gloss over our our sin in the past. No, only only God's grace can can remove it. And he is patient and is willing and kind and, and long-suffering and wants to give us that wants us to accept for that grace. He's already offered it. It's already extended to us, but he wants us to accept it with through through obeying, through obedience to the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. And that from the heart. Not just not just performing and not just not just trying to live a moral life. And that's and that's all well and good, but no amount of morality, no amount of being a good dad or a good husband or a good employee or giving to charity, no no amount of good deeds will ever do anything to take sin past sin away. It will never remove it. It's it's there, right? One transgression leads to condemnation, and there's no way we can earn our way into heaven. There's no way we can merit salvation from God. And there's a lot of other points that we can learn from this from this text. And one of those is, is that God is impartial in his in his judgment. So there's some popular thinking out there in the in the in the world that that's mostly due to reform theology um, which has several different branches. It's it's you know Lutheranism, it's Calvinism, Presbyterianism, a number of other things. It's and it's spilled over into other denominations as well. But um, the the Westminster Confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, which you know some of those denominations will acknowledge to a greater extent than others, but it, part of it essentially t- teaches that God is a respecter of persons, or that He does show par- partiality. Um, that he has unconditionally ordained some people for condemnation, dishonor, and wrath, while it's at the same time unconditionally justifying and exalting others. And so, in other words, the point is that the, of this confession that uh, was written by, I suppose it was Calvin, I don't know exactly who, but uh, is that uh, there's nothing you can do, right? And, and, and that's true. Nobody can earn or merit salvation, but that doesn't mean that God has not placed conditions upon the reception of his of his gift of grace. Because Paul says in Romans 2, beginning in verse 9, that there will be tri- tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So notice the criterion there. It's The, the dividing line is who does what. Right? For the person who does evil, there's tribulation and distress, there's destruction. But for the person who perseveres in doing good, there is there is hope, there's glory, there's honor and peace. As Paul says earlier in, in verse 6, that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And so one might say, well, wait a minute, does that mean that it sounds like the opposite of what you're saying, that people can earn their way into heaven? How else will God judge people according to their deeds? Well, I want you to think back to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment because I think at least part of the answer to that that question that may be arising in your mind is is there. In Matthew chapter 7, which is Jesus um, talking about the scene of judgment, the last, the last day, he says, Not everyone who says to me, in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And look at the verse 22. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so we see this, uh, again, Jesus affirming what Paul is saying. You have to do the will of the Father. You have to do good. You have to uh, conform to the word of God. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. But look at the example that he gives here. He says that there's going to be people who say on the day of judgment, we prophesy and we cast out demons and we perform many miracles. Those are all good things, right? Good, moral, even in Jesus' time, miraculous things. We think, well, how could... How could that be wrong? Well, those acts, doing those things aren't wrong in and of themselves, right? Those those are good things to do. But the key is, Jesus says, I, I never knew you. I never knew you. Yeah, you did all those things. Externally, you looked great. Externally, you went through the motions. Externally, it looked like you were obeying. But you were never in an approved relationship with me. You never entered into a covenant with me, thus my blood does not cleanse you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. See, all, the, all that prophesying, all that casting out demons, all that performing of many miracles, it did nothing. It did nothing to remove their lawlessness, verse 23. They still practiced lawlessness. And so that no matter how many good things we do, we can't earn heaven. We can't merit it. But nevertheless, we are judged according to what we do. But only if what we do is uh, um, from the heart. We're going to be judged for what we do. And it, it only means anything to God, I should say, if if it is obedience from the heart. right? Because many people, again, externally can go through the motions. And in the context, Paul is calling Jew and Gentile alike to acknowledge that God sees through feigned obedience. That's the point, Romans chapter 3. He sees, God sees through feigned obedience, just going through the motions. He sees beyond ethnicity. He sees beyond all external appearances and things. He looks inwardly to the spirit of man, and he's looking for an obedient heart. As Jesus says in John 4, 23, the Father is seeking such as these to worship him, those who will worship in, in spirit and in truth, not just inwardly and genuinely from the heart, but in accordance to his truth and what he has revealed. So does that describe you and me? Do we do we do the th- good things that we do, the noble things? Do, do we do those things simply because we're wanting to be a good father or simply because we're wanting to be a good employer or because we're wanting to be a good husband? Th- that's good in and of itself. And, and as much as performing miracles is good in and of itself and prophesying in Jesus' name is good in and of itself. But why? But why are you doing those things? That's the key. Are you doing it ultimately to honor God and because you want to submit to Him and obey Him? There's going to be a lot of good people in hell. People who, as Jesus says, even perform miracles in His name, but never knew Him, never came to Him for forgiveness, never submitted from the heart, obeyed from the heart, his gospel, so that they could be purified inwardly. There will 
not be, there may be good people in hell, but there will not be uh, any forgiven people in hell. Because all are indicted before God. All men are accountable to God as his creation, regardless of whether we're talking about this new dispensation of Jesus Christ or the law of Moses or even before the law of Moses. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 13, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given. Speaking of the law of Moses there. But sin is not charged against anyone's account, he says, where there is no law. And Paul's point is, is that there's always been law, in other words. People have always been subject to God's law, whether it was in the Garden of Eden, before the Mosaic Law, all the time leading up to the time of Moses, um, during the Mosaic Dispensation, even the Gentiles, as he'll, he'll describe later in this chapter, who did the things of the law instinctively. And even now, in the last days in which God has spoken to us through His dear Son, Hebrews 1, 12, excuse me, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, everyone is, is indicted before God. All have violated God's laws at, at one point or another in any and every age. Uh, and even, as I mentioned, Gentiles who never received the law of Moses, Romans 2.12. So a lot of people have questions about, well, yeah, God delivered his law to um, to His to the Hebrews, and, and they were his special people. But what about all those other people in the world at, at the time, it, it leading up to, to Jesus, who weren't of the Jewish nation, who didn't have this special law? Well, you know, whatever law they had that God delivered to them, it's just wasn't preserved for, for us, um, wasn't wasn't necessary. But there has always been law. Look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And when Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves because they show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or else defend them. Again, the implication is nobody is justified. Nobody is justified before God. Everybody has fallen short, Jew and Gentile, even when Gentiles instinctively did the things of the law because they have a conscience just like every other person made in the in the image of, of God. And Paul is saying when they broke the law, their their conscience accused them, right? So they're also without excuse. And when Paul says in verse 12, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The implication there is that nobody is justified as a doer of the law. In other words... Paul isn't affirming that anyone actually is or could be justified by keeping the law. Because he was going to say in the very next chapter, in Romans 3 and verse 20, which we don't have time to cover today, that no one will be justified by keeping the law. And so here he's just simply stating the principle by which one would be justified by law-keeping, whether Jew or Gentile, whether they lived under the law of Moses or, or not, He's simply stating that in order to do that, they would have to, to keep it without ever breaking it. And so, for example, I could say, if I wanted to make a parallel to what Paul is saying in Romans 2.12, I could say that runners runners to the moon will be idolized. Right? Obviously, nobody can run, run to the moon. right? But I'm just making it a statement that if they could, they would be elevated in the eyes of men. But in saying that, in saying runners to the moon will be idolized, 
I'm not actually affirming that anyone actually has run to the moon. I'm saying such a thing to make the opposite point, right? I'm magnifying the point that nobody has, in fact, run to the moon. And that's what Paul is doing here. Nobody has. Uh, nobody will be justified by keeping the law of Moses or any law because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So faith from the heart in Jesus Christ is the only way to stand justified before God. As Paul will say later and also in the same letter in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. One has to truly believe from the heart that Jesus is who he says he is, that God did raise him from the dead, and that he is the only hope that I have of surviving judgment when my time comes, either when I die or when he returns. No amount of law-keeping will save me, but I must, I must nevertheless submit to the law of God, the law of Christ. Again, from, from the heart, trusting at the same time that his blood will cleanse me from my sin. Paul, excuse me, God requires obedience from the heart. And Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 3 is just taking us all to task over the sin that we've committed. Because there's, there's a warning for, you know, even religious people at the end of this chapter that just because we've been instructed in the will of God, Romans 2.20, and have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and we may be confident, capable instructors ourselves, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have applied God's teaching to our own hearts. Verse 21, as Paul says there, you, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Yeah, you're, yeah, you know the truth, and you're, very, and you're a capable instructor, and you know that it's wrong to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and, and etc. But do you teach yourself? Do you apply it to your own heart? Paul would later warn Timothy of men who had the appearance of godliness, but denied its power to change them inwardly. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse, and verse 5, he spoke of men who profess uh, or possess a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And this is the same class of people Paul is speaking of here in, in Romans chapter 2, that those who would preach against stealing, who would preach against adultery and idolatry, but they themselves be thieves, adulterers, and idolaters, causing the name of God to be blasphemed. Verses 22 through 24 at the end of that chapter there. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And so outwardly, Paul is saying that there's a lot of people who appear religious and who even preach sound doctrine and preach scriptural lessons, and, and they just are so good at having a form of godliness, but ultimately they reject the power of God's word to transform them into genuinely godly men. And that's just manufactured hollow obedience. And it doesn't blind God to the fact that one is a transgressor of his law, that we are sinners, and that we all have all broken his law at one point or another. 
And so Paul uses the specific example of circumcision in the context and how that was a part of God's law and it was given um, for for a reason. But his his point is is that 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 in and of itself circumcision in and of itself physical circumcision that is in and of itself is was of no value if the one who had had physical circumcision refused to submit to God in all things in every aspect of life. Verses twenty five through twenty seven. And so Paul puts it this way elsewhere. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19. And again, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So the point in both texts and in our base text that we're using this morning is that outward submission, outward obedience doesn't really count for anything, but true submission to God is more than that. It's more than outwardly going through the motion. It's, it begins, true submission begins in the heart. And any act of obedience that doesn't originate there isn't real obedience. As Paul says in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, he says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so the question comes to us then have have we obeyed from the heart and are we are we obeying from from the heart? That's what God wants to see and that's the only kind of obedience that's acceptable ultimately is that which is from from faith. That implicit trust that striving to obey and submit to God in every aspect of my life. That's what he sees, according to Romans 2, and that's what's acceptable to him. So perhaps there's a spiritual need that you have that you want to contact us and maybe study some more, or you are ready to repent and obey the gospel yourself. Well, we hope that you would make that decision and contact us either through our website or phone or email any way that any way that you can. LeonValleyChurch.org is our website. You can find a lot of information there. More information about how to how to contact us. LeonValleyChurch at gmail.com is our email address. So please make use of those things. I hope that you continue to study and pray about these things. I'm going to do the same. I'm Jason Garcia. This has been Faithful Sayings. <laughs>